I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. And then there were two. After placing second in the Iowa caucuses, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is the latest candidate to drop out of the Republican primary field, throwing his support behind frontrunner former President Donald Trump. Now it's between the former president and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Does she have enough momentum to make a significant shakeup at the New Hampshire primary? Here with me at the Bedford Village Inn in New Hampshire is my friend Trey Gowdy. He's the host of Sunday Night in America with Trey Gowdy, which you can watch every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. He's also the host of the Trey Gowdy podcast on Fox News Audio. New episodes out every Tuesday and Thursday. Trey, welcome to Perino on Politics. It's great to have you. It's great to be with you, and I feel guilty because the the list of things I do is so short compared to the list of things that you do. It well, just I makes me feel also inadequate. that you're a lawyer, you have you know, clients, you are a wonderful uh, husband and a great father. Do you have a dog, though? We do have a dog named Justice. And, oh, that's funny. Um, Justice. We've had... Judge, jury, bailiff, <laughs> they're all in heaven, and I really do believe that dogs are in heaven. I do, too. And do justice too. is our latest one, and um, I can't imagine life without a dog. Me, too. I, when, when I got home from Iowa, I was I had one night without Percy, and then Peter and Percy came back, and just to have Percy for a night was so great. And then I said, okay, and I'll see you again when we are back from New Hampshire, because we're here at the Bedford Village Inn. By the way, did you have the Village Inn restaurant growing up? Uh, if we did, uh, I either had been kicked no, out of it. Or no, you wouldn't know. Okay, so it was a chain. Okay, oh, it was oh. sort of like Denny's. It's called the Village Inn, and I don't even know if they're still going. Bonewald's going to Google that for me because I can see him. The Village Inn was like the place to go, and the, what I loved about it, it was sort of like a Denny's, but maybe a little more upscale if i do say um but you could get breakfast all day long oh right is one of those places like a waffle house where we have a papa john's where you can get breakfast all day long. papa john's it's called papa john's is it pizza no it is breakfast all day long uh there is a there is a papa john's pizza pizza, but there's also a papa i got my wife over to my left i'm sure she's (laughs) going to correct me and say no it's papa bob or papa steve but there's a restaurant where I mean, people who love breakfast food, they want it day long. That's right. Although when I was a kid, if I went for breakfast, if my parents took us for breakfast, but you could get a hamburger, then I would do that. Because <laughs> I just wanted to be contrary. Um, the uh, Village Inn still exists. Okay, it's good to know because that's a great place. Orange logo. Love the place. Okay, so we're here to talk about politics. Trey, we've not had this situation since I've been at Fox. And I asked Britt Hume if he's ever had this situation where you get to the New Hampshire primary and there are only two candidates left in the race i can't remember it i remember in 2016 because i was the last time i was i was in new hampshire was with marco rubio tim mm-hmm. scott and i came mm-hmm. uh, with others to try to help you know push or pull marco over the finish line and i remember the thinking being because uh, i had friends that supported ted cruz um and i mean and all the other candidates but they keep thinking if we can just get it to be one-on-one we'll be fine just one-on-one with trump and I never was sure that they were right about it. Well, now it's one on one, and it's one on one. What's to your much quicker than anybody thought it would be. Mm-hmm. I, the polling I indicate, I see indicates DeSantis supporters 
go to the former president yeah. and not to Nikki. That's what it shows. And I think the other thing that has happened, apparently, just so to catch everybody up, um, on this podcast, we keep it real 30,000-foot level, not get too much into the nitty-gritty. Like, if we had Bill Hemmer here, he would be getting into the precinct <laughs> level. Like, we don't need to do that. But overall, what Ron DeSantis said he had heard from some people is that you're our candidate, but not while Trump's in the race and we'd love to see you in 2028. And he had a lot of money going into this race. He had the PAC money with him. And I think over time, it was just pretty clear when he didn't win any of the counties in Iowa to get to New Hampshire and to think, am I just going to lose in New Hampshire and then lose again in South Carolina? He's a very competent executive and a competent governor. And he has perhaps a bright political future in front of him but regardless he decided to drop out and then nikki haley got what she said she's wanted all along which is to winnow the field so it gets down to two people her and donald trump and here we are and i asked her this morning on america's newsroom did you get to a two-person race too late for it to make a difference uh she says stay tuned but what do you think I, I, I sit here in amazement. I remember r- looking at Governor DeSantis and Casey and their children on the stage midterm night 2022. Overwhelming victory. And, and for Republicans, that was not a great night. Marco did well. Yeah. Tim did well. Ron DeSantis knocked As it out Tim of the Scott. park. Tim Scott, yeah, mm-hmm. did well. He mm-hmm. overperformed, but. The House, barely the Republicans won. The Senate, they lost some winnable races. So it it seemed like November 2022, Ron was the star. And he seemed presidential on that stage. And he was well-funded. And we're coming out of COVID. Like, he was definitely the future of the party, maybe the present. And to see him go, what, 0 for 99 in Iowa? Mm -hmm. I don't know how many counties there are in Iowa. I think it's 99. Mm -hmm. You're right. Zero for 99, Mm -hmm. doing so not well in New Hampshire that you bypass New Hampshire to go to South Carolina. Here are my dominant thoughts. It is really hard to run for an office that less than 50 people have ever held. And And I admire and respect people who are willing to do it. The fact that they want you to be the governor of Florida does not necessarily mean they want you to be the leader of the free world and mm. again if you had told me that night that president trump would be facing multiple felony indictments and his numbers would go up and ever since Ron the first DeSantis indictment the numbers have gone up wouldn't make it like out of iowa mm-hmm. i would have said you're crazy and that's exactly what mm-hmm. happened um why you know i know that you know tim you're from south carolina in case people didn't realize that uh, who are listening uh you're You've known Nikki Haley and Tim Scott for a long time. You were probably friends with them uh, when Tim Scott got appointed to be the U.S. Senator, first black American to be U.S. Senator from South Carolina, significant moment in the state's history. And Tim Scott decided to endorse Donald Trump before this New Hampshire primary. What do we need to know about the relationship between Nikki and Tim Scott, or is it just purely... Uh, logical politics that Tim Scott had in mind. I I, I think um, they're both friends. I saw uh, Governor Haley uh, this morning. Um, I think very highly of her. Her chief of staff um, is someone I talk to on an almost daily basis. Her former chief of staff when she was the governor. 
it's a small state, as you point out. We're either related or connected, um, <laughs> all of us in South Carolina. Here's what I think some people miss. Tim and Nikki never served together. Nikki was running for governor when Tim was running for Congress. Okay. So they may have been colleagues in the state house, but they weren't close. They were never in the trenches together. Well, and and they, if you recall, she listed three names when Jim DeMent said he was leaving. Jenny Sanford, the old man that you're sitting next to, and <laughs> Tim Scott. And so Tim and I would talk on a regular basis. Have you heard anything? No, nah, have you heard anything? There was very little interaction between then-Governor Haley and then-Congressman Scott. She did pick him, which was the very best decision she could have made for our state and our country and for her. But the notion that she thought there was a quid pro quo or that he thought he right. he cut ads for her when she ran for re-election. But, you know, look, I, I like Governor Haley very, very much. But there is a school of thought that she could have made her point in that debate without name-checking Tim. Mm-hmm. And she did name-checking. In which debate, the California debate? The, the debate where she was talking about the budgets that, that you know, Congress is spending too much money. It, it got in the, I think it was the California debate. It was, it, I was one of the moderators. The moderator. and it was one of those things. It was like, guys, this looks, it felt like they were having like a side squabble. <laughs> well, he later went back and brought up the curtains at, 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 at the, the UN. UN. Yes, but what happened first? Because Tim is not wired for ad hominem fighting. It's no. just not in his DNA. And so I'm, I think he's sitting there thinking, you know, Governor, I voted for budgets that you called me and asked me to vote vote for mm-hmm. because it had good stuff in, for South Carolina in it, and for you. To, like, by name critique me on the debate mm-hmm. stage, I think was an eye-opening experience for him. Mm-hmm. I can tell you it was never, in Tim's mind, it was never do I endorse Trump, Haley, DeSantis. It was do I endorse Trump or no one. I see. It was it was not I see. Okay. either or. Um, so going forward, uh, we don't know what will happen in New Hampshire. We can't predict. But the polls have been pretty accurate so far in this contest and it looks like president trump if you at 50 percent, maybe even more nikki haley around 36 percent um and then just let's look forward and just assume and to make an ass out of you and me i'm going to assume <laughs> for a moment that trump becomes the nominee and this contest is done so how do you think he can best unite the party the speech he gave after iowa which all the networks did not cover, but you heard it and I heard it, mm-hmm. was one of the more conciliatory speeches I've heard him give. Mm-hmm. And he can be that way privately. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm not sure he isn't usually that way privately. If he can get the voices out of his head that tell him he's constantly in primary or feed the base mode, then I think he'll do fine in November. But at some point, the primary is over. The base um, has had plenty to eat. The base may even need to eat less. The speech he gave in Iowa is the kind that I think would resonate with the constituencies that he needs. And I'm mainly speaking of either single women or married, college-educated women. Mm -hmm. That's the group that I think he needs. And so conciliatory, mm-hmm. don't punch down, don't pick fights that are unnecessary, 
he can be successful. It depends on which, you know, do you listen to your good angels or your not-so-good angels? It's interesting because he did have a that speech in Iowa that was notable for its tone. But then on Truth Social, he was posting other things. <laughs> so, uh, But he fights on all sorts of levels, and he checks a lot of blocks ticks a lot of boxes for some people. I imagine that the Biden campaign right now is looking at this going, okay, this is the contest we said we wanted. Um, if they wanted it, I, I think most of the country probably, if you like put him on a, put him on a polygraph, would say, you know, it'd be great if we had like a new generation that we could mm-hmm. pick from, but that's not what we're going to have. Right. Uh, the polling would indicate, I think, that Ron would have maybe done better in a head-to-head. Nikki would have done better in a head-to-head. The thing about President Trump supporters, you know, I think he was joking when he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth <laughs> Avenue and get away with it. I'm, I think he was joking, but I don't think his supporters were joking. <laughs> I, I think literally they will be with him no matter what. Well, and it's also interesting, as the, um, we mentioned, that the lawsuits or the, um, the you know, all the indictments and the charges against him and how his numbers have gone up from that. It's so interesting how many Democrats will look at this and say, how could they possibly vote for him? Um, when he's under all these nine uh, indictments and 91 charges and they repeat 91 charges over and over. And I have to say, but, but you guys, do you understand? It's making them feel like this could happen to them, like yes. that they could be unfairly targeted in the United States, which is supposed to have a, a blind justice system. Which is what I wish more people would do in our country, which is instead of sitting there and ask that question, ask why. Why would people stick with someone who has been indicted multiple times? And I used to say the same thing in my own defense, uh, although I would pick another lawyer, in my own defense. People back in my hometown, how in the world could anybody ever vote for Barack Obama? And my response would be, have you asked them? Have, do you know anybody in your life that voted for him? Mm-hmm. So, Trump, this notion of unfairness, once you perceive that someone has been treated unfairly, lay the criminal stuff aside for a second. It's impossible to argue that they did not put a, put a cloud over his first presidency. It's impossible. I mean, the whole Russia thing was four years of a cloud. Mm-hmm. And if you perceive... Um, as I do and others, and I was on committees that looked into it, that it was a baseless, factless attack, then you think he was treated unfairly. And you have a tendency to kind of give him a makeup call, like referees do. If I blew this call, I'm going to give you that one. And I tell you, Trump's base, they're convinced that there was a cloud, manufactured cloud, put mm-hmm. over his first term. Yeah. And there's really not much of anything he can do. That's going to make them say, we're not with you anymore. Exactly. Okay, we're going to wrap up this first segment and be right back. All right, Trey, for the second segment, I did want to talk about uh, the House of Representatives. I know that you might have a little bit of post-traumatic stress from your time serving in the House. (laughs) But could we talk a little bit about the new speaker, Mike Johnson, and what he's dealing with in terms of trying to... Keep his speakership, right? He's got a two-vote margin now. Um, it's a, not a very large majority. And they're working on this bipartisan deal for immigration. The, the Senate Democrats are trying to work this with re- Senate Republicans and the White House. And Mike Johnson is staring down the barrel of a gun. What do you think happens on this issue where you have now in two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, voters from both parties saying the border is their number one issue. 
I think nothing happens. I think James Langford and others have been working really hard on it. But with one tweet or Truth Social or whatever you call it now, uh, President, former President Trump is going to say, I'm not in support of this deal. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure most House members would be supportive of it regardless. You know, the Senate is about compromise. And let's see if we I mean, they're in the minority, too. The House isn't interested in that. I mean, the Republicans in the House can't even get along with one another. Mm-hmm. They can't even ne- negotiate with one another. So the notion that they're going to negotiate with Senate Democrats? <laughs> yeah. Mike Johnson, yeah. you know, I, I used to always think that being the president was third in line. Well, I mean, being Speaker of the House was third in line for the presidency. It's really first in line for the gallows. If you, it, I mean, it really is. It, it, it's. I watched Boehner, I watched Paul, I watched what they did to Kevin the first time, then I watched what they made him go through in January, and then I watched what they did to him in October, and then they couldn't they couldn't pick a successor, they had no plan, and now Mike's been there, what, three months, who, by the way, despite what people may read in the paper about him being some religious fanatic, he's only a fanatic if it's, like, fanatical to really practice what you believe. If that's fanatical, then, yeah, Mike Johnson's a fanatic. He's a very good, decent guy. But he was also, what, the seventh choice? And and when you're down to the seventh choice, uh, there's no honeymoon. I mean, that's like a shotgun marriage. There's no honeymoon. I think they're smart enough to realize, hey, we can't go get rid of another speaker, but they're bringing down their own rules. I mean, House Republicans are bringing down their own rules, which means you don't get to vote on it. And then they're complaining that we're not passing enough legislation. It Anyone who thinks that that is like a good job or a highly coveted job, uh, I feel sorry for Mike. Um, if they hold on to the majority, maybe he keeps the speakership. They're not going to vacate him between now and November. Well, that's actually something the second part of this segment I wanted to ask you about, because you have served in Congress. What is it like to be recruited to run for Congress and... If you were to get, not you personally, but if somebody out there is, is getting the call and they're saying, hey, you know, we really think you should run, we think you've got a good chance, good opportunity, how e- easy is it to say yes or no? And wow, thank you so much, but no thank you, that's not happening. Um, I think most people um, that are in Congress would tell you that it is uh, not a very good job. And I am stunned at the number of people. When I left, 16 people wanted to replace me. Okay. Um, and I, and some of them were friends of mine that were very good people. I think the notion of being a United States congressman or congresswoman is much better than the reality mm-hmm. of being one out of 435. There's no shortage of folks willing to do it. But when I look at the folks that are leaving, and I hate to be so blunt, but I see a higher quality than I do the folks that are coming. And it makes me now, if you want to be the governor or you want to be in the U.S. Senate, I understand running. If you think being one of 435, when you may possibly be in the minority, is a good way to make a living, and you're the least popular group and you're never going to get a pay raise, if you think that's a good job, um, I, I, I've had a lot of jobs in my life, including bagging groceries and delivering newspapers. Uh, being in Congress ranks down right there with getting up at four in the morning and delivering newspapers in the rain. Wow. 
There is uh, a school of thought and a little bit of a movement, though it's quiet. And having been a Hill staffer myself, let me ask you that this is when I got paid eighteen thousand dollars a year. I think when I first started, you were worth more, by the yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm kidding. But do you? There, there is a movement and a calling that says that in order to keep good talent, either in the Congress or the staff, the staff is super important. Who they do a lot of work. Do you think they should get a pay raise? Um, I think the staffer. I don't know how young people survive on their salaries um i still have my scheduler still is with me she still works with me and we we had you know co-workers living multiple people to a house oh yeah dc is a very expensive place to live Mm -hmm. and for some of them it is for nothing more than the right to pick up the phone and hear how stupid your boss is i mean that is your job and, and to give Capitol Hill tours, which I love that. I love giving a Capitol tour. For people who got me out of the office. <laughs> who don't call ahead, who just assume there's nothing else going on. And for the members, you know, I talk to John Ratcliffe all the time. Ratcliffe and I were on f- multiple committees. So you wake up in the morning, you start going from committee to committee to committee. You have to a- a- you have to ask questions and be expected to be prepared, and then you get interrupted with floor votes. Mm-hmm. Anyone who says it's glamorous and you're going to meet like the Halle Berries of the world, um, I never did. I, I never went to any of these glamorous parties that people talk about. It is, it is hard work if you do it the right way. Mm-hmm. If you want to make a difference, anybody out there that wants to make a difference in life, go teach. Is what I tell them. Teach people to do something they can't do, but don't go be one of 140, 100, 435 people. Spoken from somebody who has the experience of having done it. And I like it when you're blunt. (laughs) Well, that's a sure sign I'm never running again when you're blunt. I know, I know, exactly. That's why I always, whenever um, I get a picture taken, if I have a drink in my hand, they're like, do you want to put your drink down? Absolutely not. (laughs) I want people to think I'm a raging alcoholic so I can never run for office. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll be right back with more Perino on politics next. All right, Trey, segment three here on Perino on politics. I like to ask people what they think is the most pressing problem in their life that they're dealing with. But in this case, I would like to ask you, what do you think are the three most pressing problems in front of the federal government right now? Um, Well, I think fundamentally having some debate civilized on the role slash size slash scope of government. We have never had a consensus. In other words, conservatives used to look to themselves or the state for the solutions and not to the federal government, whereas progressives look to the federal government. That used to be the debate. That's not a slight. That was the debate. I mean, if you said, uh, Trey, you get one question to find out whether somebody is conservative or progressive, I would say, what is the role of government? That would be my one question to them. So we haven't sorted that out. I am very worried about the state of politics and that it is winning is the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how you malign someone else. It doesn't matter if the critique is appropriate or not appropriate. The other thing I worry about, and one of the reasons I like you as much as I do, um, and you don't know I'm going to say this, and this is not a paid advertisement for Dana Perino. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm ready for this. I don't but know. the fairness the notion that my friends could possibly be wrong, that my opponents could possibly be right, seems to have vanished from our 
political discourse. So I, I am worried about this um, this notion that it, by any means necessary, this relativism that because I mean we've convinced ourselves that the world's going to end if the other side. I mean you know I, I like to remind my Republican friends you survived eight years of Barack Obama. So but but they the, I mean we te- we say this is the most important election of our lifetime. If the other side wins, life as you know it is over. To Democrats, you survived George Bush. You survived the second George Bush. You survived Donald Trump. We survived Barack Obama, Joe Biden. We're a resilient people. What we're not going to be able to survive is hating one another and having the inability to even have a civil conversation about our differences. That's what scares me the most. Well, you think like about both President Trump and Biden have delineated like a, kind of us versus them. And I know that President Trump would say, I'm not doing that, and Biden would say, I'm not doing that. But when you have Biden in very well-publicized, scheduled speeches where he rarely does any sort of interaction with the press anymore but when he has in the teleprompter it says MAGA extremists right Right. then I then yeah I absolutely agree with you and I think a lot of people are concerned about that as if you were in a triage emergency room would put that one at the top the other two problems that you think the federal government needs to get a handle on well the border is is kind of a subset of all of the above Um, I, I do not understand the argument against a secure border I, I am more than willing to have a debate with people about who should come, what the qualifications mm-hmm. should be. I remember that we were even debating when I was in the House whether a DUI should be disqualified as a as being on the you know path to staying in the country. Uh, domestic violence is a non-starter with me. Um, if you are guilty of domestic violence, even though it's a misdemeanor, I don't want you in the country. But we're 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 not even to that point anymore. I mean, there are like people advocating for a lack of a boundary, and I don't understand that. So if we're that far apart, mm. somebody wrote a book once. I guess men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Or you are better read than yeah. I am, but it was something like that. We can't even like agree that border security is a fundamental. Then I don't know how you're ever going to get immigration done. Right. The third thing is that we're just not honest when it comes to um, our fiscal state. Right. Uh, we are thirty trillion dollars in debt. The main drivers of the debt are apparently off limits for people to talk about. Right. And so, I, I mean, we're, we're talking about cutting. Like, let's cut foreign aid to Ecuador. Okay. I mean, I like Ecuador, but if you want to cut foreign aid to Ecuador, that's fine. That is like. That's a teaspoon in the Pacific Ocean in terms of money. But they will not talk about Medicare. They will not talk about Medicaid. They will not talk about Social Security because they think it's a political loser. So do I blame the politicians? A little bit, but also blame us for not being willing to say, you know what? Don't think I'm dumb enough to want to hear about debt and deficit without the real drivers of it. But most people don't want to talk about it. And those bills are coming due. Because whoever is president in 2028, 2032, good luck. But they'll find a way to patch it together and let the next crowd deal with it, which to me is not leadership. um, But that's what politics has become. We've never had such a reasonable, thoughtful genius on our show. But it's been good to have you here. (laughs) Hey, so we have a quick quiz before we go. All right. 
1974 through 2016, every president has been left-handed except for one who's been right-handed. Who was he? Was it Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, or George W. Bush? Golly, Moses. I, I, I know... I know the ones that were left-handed. I'm trying to think between. I've never played golf with George W. Bush. You said George W. Bush, right? Was no. one of the options, yeah. So I've never Reagan, played. Clinton, or Bush, forty-three. Usually, he's into art. Usually, left-handed people are more <laughs> artists. Uh, Latin for Latin for left is sinister sinistra so (laughs) you're really thinking about this i am really thinking about it i'm gonna go with uh which president uh owned part of the texas rangers 43 because when he threw the pitch i think he threw it right hand there you go it was george w bush well you really thought that through i'm very impressed i got hung up on my latin there for a second (laughs) sinister sinistra my daughter is left-handed so my wife and I are trying to figure out which, because I'll tell you this, this is not what you ask, but my dad was a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. So even if he had, I have three sisters, even if one of us had been left-handed, he would have switched us to right. Because he said it's a right-handed world that you are living in. And plus, we didn't want to be bumping into each other at mm-hmm. the dinner table. So I, I wonder who in my family really is left-handed, <laughs> but we were switched you to were right suppressed. because my dad engaged in child abuse. That's what I'm really wondering. <laughs> well, you have a lot to think about. Get on with your day. Thank you so much for being on Perino on Politics. You're my favorite person in all of television oh and podcasting. I'm blushing and, if you can't see. I, I, I would do anything you ask me thank to you, do, Trey. so thank you. Thank you, Trey. Yes, ma'am. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.